This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. And I'm going to um, take um, the prerogative of uh, whoever I am and say a few words about, uh, about the symposium and then about our speaker. First of all, um, for those of you who have gathered and who have been here for the entire day, this has been, I think, um, well, to be celestial, a rather stellar event. Um, we have been surrounded by, thank you, thank you. We have been surrounded by um, intellectual star power. Um, and we're about to bring the session to a close with, um, what would you say, a big verse. In the fashion of Villanova, a nova, all right? Uh, something grand, um, something bright. It's like embarrassing. So, no Lower the I'd like to just simply go back and think about the themes of this symposium cross cultural communication and ethics. This includes a dialogue between Chinese and American colleagues on issues of how we begin to communicate and build stronger relationships across our cultural dynamics. So here are a couple of things that I have taken away and something that I'd like you to consider as well. The first thing, and probably at the top of the list, is what is it that we've learned and what can we continue to learn from one another? This is an ongoing process. It's a perpetual process. It is something that we've just begun. We hope to continue for many, many years into the future. This is an important process, too. You only need to look back to last week. Yes, last week, Pope Francis was in town, but hovered around him in many, many places were political figures on their way to the UN, including Mr. Obama and Mr. Xi. These are important moments. These are moments that shape our very existence. As one of our symposium presenters said, there are things that we need to talk about that matter. Of course, those of you in the audience who are, let's put it this way, students, need to begin to think about what matters. And then you also need to begin to enter into dialogue across spaces, with people who may not be in the same major as you, with people who may not be in the same city, on the same continent, who may not share the same cultural language, but you have the technical apparatus in order to begin dialogue, in order to begin to transcend difference, but also to move into other cultural spaces. In moving into those cultural spaces, you need to learn to read across cultures. Read in quotation marks. That reading means that you have to recognize, this is what one of our colleagues has said, cultural integration and the possibilities of that cultural integration. To understand that what happens in this space, in these spaces that we share, are not simply spaces that are dominated by one side or the other. It is not simply the web shaping Shanghai, but it is the facts of the gifts that Shanghai, the Chinese, and other cultures bring to us 
that become most important in terms of forging what we are in global space. In doing that, we're crossing barriers. We are transcending differences, but in transcending those differences, we can never go there without respecting difference when we see it. And finally, in the respect for cultural difference, we need to think about the question of accommodating cultural difference, of becoming comfortable with difference, comfortable enough to accept it for what it is, to learn from it, and to grow from it in terms of shaping the global space that we'd like to all call home. So without further ado, Dr. Ting Tumi, well, she has um, a resume that um, defies description to some degree. She is the initiator of a process in conflict resolution that all of us should become aware of because we attempt to practice it rather dubiously in our daily lives. The idea of saving face of restoring face, the idea of, as one person put it, not having our brand damaged and then attempting to reclaim it, these are all the fundamental processes of everyday life. But they're also the fundamental processes of cultural interaction. Dr. Toomey has coined this, it has become hers. Everywhere that you look, when you find the term, her name is associated with it. It is huge in terms of thinking about how we negotiate conflict. Today, she's going to speak to us, as you can see, on intercultural communication competence, intercultural communication competence, ethical issues to ponder. There are ethical issues in how we think of ourselves in all ways, across all spectrums, whether they be individual interactions or interactions within cultures. This is important stuff, and there's no need to remind you that you're important people who we're entrusting to do important stuff in the years to come. So without further ado, Professor Ting Tumi. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Kika, for the beautiful introduction. This is 5 p.m., and it's just so amazing to see so many faces in the audience. I don't think I could get all my colleagues and students to be here at, for Cal State Fullerton, but thank you for being here. Uh, what I would like to do first is to really thank Dr. Shi Wang for uh, inviting me here and Dr. Cravo for coordinating my trip so that I'm standing right in front of you right now. Uh, more important, I thank the Department of Communication, Villanova University, especially the Waterhouse Family Institute for sponsoring this trip and also the Institute of Global Interdisciplinary Studies and also School of Business to coordinate all this to come together. And of course, definitely the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, congratulations, and also establishing in partnership with Villanova University, the Cross-Cultural Education and Communication Center. So we are at a very exciting time and I'm really happy to at least do the closure today. At first I thought it was the beginning, but now I realize I'm closing. <laughs> So what I would like to do, when I was preparing for this particular speech for the last uh, 
several weeks, I was really thinking about my audience in terms of whether I should aim for my professional colleagues or for my students. So I decided to maybe tread somewhere in between, the middle, so hopefully. And I would really like to use this venue as a, hopefully we could generate some meaningful dialogue and conversation, all right? So I do decide to pick the topic of intercultural communication competency because whether you're administrators or faculty or students, at some point, whether you have already traveled or you dream of traveling, whether it's going overseas or coming to United States, et cetera. So hopefully some of those constructs will be useful for you. Whether it's the theorizing process, researching, or most important, maybe applications. I also want you to see that this is like a dessert menu for you because since 9 a.m. we have heard so many fruitful and productive intellectual ideas, applied ideas in the area of cross-cultural communication and ethics. So maybe some of those concepts hopefully could resonate with some of your audience that may be here since 9 a.m. and you could plug in some of those ideas. So let me just start first. This is my agenda. We have uh, one hour, 25 minutes. <laughs> So what I would like to do first is to define intercultural communication competency. What is intercultural communication competency? And since the symposium theme is on ethics, my question is what is the role of ethics in studying intercultural competency? Furthermore, what is the role of ethics in our teaching and training? Because since I realized that uh, you have developed a partnership in terms of the cross-cultural education and communication center, and I saw the word experiential learning somewhere, <laughs> So I thought maybe I should address some of the teaching and uh, uh, training issues also in studying and understanding intercultural competency. And finally, maybe a set of recommendations to talk about meta-ethics uh, uh, issues. Okay. Intercultural communication competency in one sense is really an interdisciplinary construct such as also ethics. So it's nice to have this forum to have the convergence of talking about the two themes and concepts together. So let me just give you at least my definition of what is intercultural competency. To me, intercultural competency takes time, right? To develop yourself to be an appropriate and effective intercultural communicator across culture, to me, is a developmental journey. It takes time. Um, I have been in America now more than 35 years, but still feel like I've been learning. Originally, I came from Hong Kong, all right, China. So maybe I could talk a little bit about my journey to highlight some of the concepts we'll be talking about. Intercultural competency is also an integrative concept, uh, integrating different elements, such as culture-sensitive knowledge, developing ethno-relative attitudes, and of course, behaviorally practicing adaptive communication skills. So typically in our field, whether we talk about interpersonal communication competency or intercultural competency, we do have three dimensions that we have identified, whether it's theorizing, researching, or application. That is really to train or to be mindful of the culture's sense of knowledge of wherever you're going, whether you're going to Turkey or China or Indonesia or Russia, to have whether it's culture general knowledge or culture specific knowledge about the particular destination you are going. It's also having knowledge, I think earlier we have a panel talk about self-awareness. Self-awareness and other awareness are two important concepts. Having the knowledge hopefully will heighten your culture sensitive uh, awareness about yourself and about other awareness. Chinese have the proverb that say, before you know you are like a frog inside the well, 
you only see a piece of the sky, <laughs> whereas when you start traveling, you are like a frog now, jump out of the well, and you see the bigger piece of the sky. So that's sun, okay. <laughs> All right, so the frog method of always kind of intrigued me. So hopefully culture-sensitive knowledge could let you see the broader horizon of the beautiful sky. We also train people to really transform the attitude from probably a more close-minded, ethnocentric mindset to a more open-minded attitude. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And of course, having the knowledge and the attitude, but you don't know how to activate that, that won't be useful either. So if you have a lot of cognitive knowledge, but if you don't actualize it, so you need practice in terms of appropriate and effective behaviors in whatever culture you're going. In the intercultural and interpersonal literature, we also identify three criteria in order to be a competent intercultural communicator. And that is when other people see you, whether you go to China, and people looking at you, how you communicate, implicitly, at least from our research, we'll say that, are you appropriate? The behavior, the verbal and nonverbal behaviors. When someone asks you, have you eaten yet? If you say no, and then you stop, would that be appropriate in China? Probably not, right? China is very relationship building culture. So even if you ate already, it's really like, hello, how are you fine? <laughs> for, for American, for Chinese students or internationals coming, they say, I was ready to tell my, 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 my roommate or my classmate that I have a hard time uh, in terms of registering for the class, and I really don't know when, by the time I say this, my American roommate already is gone. But I say this is an American way of validation. Hi, how are you fine? It's a greeting ritual, right? But I see American students are actually very caring. If you take the time and really want to talk to your classmate or your friend, you just need to bracket the time. As this is when the hallway conversation is really expected, hi, how are you fine? And we just bypass each other as a validation process. Such as when the Chinese say, have you eaten yet? Usually our implicit notion is, well, maybe at some point we should have some dim sum and have some tea. So it's really a relationship rapport building type of proper behaviors. So that's what proper, in terms of when we look at someone, whether we say that that person is really communicating uh, competently and incompetently, sort of one of the three criteria is that is he or her, her, um, her in terms of observing the proper behaviors in accordance to the situation, all right, no verbal and nonverbal proper behaviors. Of course, we also said that maybe we should work on effectiveness. Effectiveness is typically the outcome dimension. You can know how to bow all you want, you can know how to do the, all the appropriate greeting rituals, but if you don't move towards your intercultural, interpersonal goals, all right, at least from one of the two intercultural communicators, they still think that it's very ineffective. So effectiveness is about goal outcome, all right, accomplishing goal outcome. Appropriateness is about proper or improper communication behaviors in accordance to the process uh, of communication. And of course, all this takes behavioral adaptability, how flexible you are in terms of adapting, right, in terms of to the other culture, or how flexible in terms of your negotiating common meanings and try to reach some understanding. And to me, when you act appropriately, effectively, and also adaptively, it takes really high skill of creativity, all right? So with that, so let me just go a little bit further to introduce the intercultural competency because I know you're not all in the intercultural communication field. Typically in our intercultural communication theorizing, researching, and also application training process, uh, 
those are some of the topics we talk about, whether we talk about cultural value dimensions issue, how values serve as ex explanatory uh, framework to explain why people be behave the way they behave. We are also very interested in identity complexity issue, whether it's socio-cultural membership issue, um, racial issue, ethnic issues, gender issue, or we are interested also in personal identity. So at the same time, we talk about cultural level differences. We do pay attention also to unique individual characteristics, or at least at this point of our research. Since this is called a communication field, communication for us is a symbolic exchange process between persons of two or more cultural communities, right? And of course, it really talks about the use of language, verbal and nonverbal, and how we construct meanings. You could be fluent in language, but you could still be a communication fool if you apply the wrong, proper, apply your behavior in the wrong setting, or say the wrong thing or calling my mom by the first name when you should really call her Mr. and Mrs., right, my mom. Or if you're closer to me, you should say Auntie Tane as versus just Hi Jeannie, all right, that would totally violate the, the appropriateness cultural norms. Uh, we also talk a lot about culture shock management issue because we do know that uh, in one sense, intercultural communication field was developed after World War II, all right, the establishment of Peace Corps volunteer program. After World War II, all that, we we're sending diplomats overseas so actually intercultural communication is a very applied field. It's really later on we realized that teaching other people's do and don'ts may not get them so far. Because if I want to teach you just the, the do's and don'ts of how to hold a pair of chopsticks, when to pick the chopstick down, there will be 150 rules and you will not learn enough to behave properly. So we do believe in that we need some explanatory framework to explain why people do what they do, all right, as general guidance. Uh, rather than being overly prescriptive. We also talk about relationship development issues. Our young students, at least in my campus, usually enjoy it because at this point we have nine billion in terms of bicultural, biracial kids in the US. That means their parents are really from different cultures, all right, coming to this hybrid identity. So dating issues, uh, roommate, romantic relationship issue, all that are actually very important. So how many of you actually are dating or know someone dating across culture? Anyone here? Maybe? Not as much? Okay, so in our campus, our campus is about, at this point, incoming freshmen, it's about 75% Latino and Asian students. Okay, so it's totally a diverse, so like it or not, by proximity, it's very easy for them to establish friendship and the next level to even want to develop some close dating relationship. So they always find relationship development very fascinating, whether we talk about self-disclosure issue, or in some cultures or personality style, you're more monochronic based, move the relationship real fast, or some of you take time to know the person, that's called polychronic time system. So we talk about all this stuff. Conflict styles, that's really my area of research, so we'll stay with it in the next few slides, about conflict styles uh, in the workplace or in the interpersonal relationship development. And then in our field also, at some point, actually of course, uh, some of you are into research, we do talk about the three paradigms of research in intercultural. The first paradigm is called the functional paradigm, right? More quantitative research, survey, experimental, objective data collection, objective data analysis. Uh, the other one is called interpretive paradigm, the narrative storytelling paradigm. Um, case study method, interview method, ethnographic, those are called the more interpretive paradigm. 
And of course, the last few years, we now have the critical paradigm, especially in terms of about the muted voices in the larger society. It's really the critical paradigm in terms of dominant uh, group as versus the powerless group and how they negotiate power structures uh, in our society. So those are more the diversity issues, social justice issues. And of course, since today, I think this ethical consideration will probably stay with that. So what I would like to do actually is, uh, since there are so many things going on in our field and very rich uh, research findings uh, through different ways of doing research, I would like to focus on my own a little bit in terms of face negotiation theory to give you a taste of um, what is face negotiation theory and actually using my own research, do a little bit of critique in terms of the current status of the intercultural conflict competency field. The theory I developed uh, started in 1985, so some of you were not born, <laughs> okay. It's called the Conflict Phase Negotiation Theory. Uh, the first version was 1988, subsequently 1995, 2005, uh, doing a lot of research to substantiate whether it's the assumptions and most important, some of the propositions. The recent pro assumption of the phase negotiation theory actually has seven assumptions, but because of time, I just want to give you the three core assumptions I also want to explain to you why did I develop and theorize about phase was when I was doing my dissertation at the University of Washington, I was studying marital conflict. I just got married, so I thought I should study why <laughs> we have conflicts. <laughs> All right, East-West marriage, <laughs> it's a day-to-day -day thing. Uh, so I was reading a lot, 150, 200 articles on interpersonal marital conflicts, and I realized that in the Western communication research journals, when you, when you deal with conflict, intimate conflict, they really suggest that you really should like go up front, uh, you have something to say, say to your partner, be honest, uh, be transparent, this is the best way to, to approach conflict, be confrontational. But when I was thinking at that point, my parents' marriage, they married for so long, I have never seen them argue and confrontational. However, non-verbally, when my mom and dad were getting along, uh, when my father's tea, half cup of tea is empty, my mom would pour. When my mom shivered a little bit with the window open, my father would close the window and put a sweater on her shoulder. However, on the day of conflict, what happened? Tea will remain cold. <laughs> no one pour it, and my mother will be shivering, although my father noticed, but he was not putting a sweater on her shoulder. So it's a very subtle way of managing conflict. It's really not the Western approach of being assertive or self-disclose your feeling. A lot of non-verbal stuff's going on, very subtle uh, in our Eastern Asian worldview. So that's really why I started interested in developing a theory called conflict-based negotiation theory, to theorize about a little bit of the Eastern and Western differences in terms of conflict communication approaches and styles. So, the three assumptions listed already on this, this slide. Individuals in all cultures to me try to negotiate and maintain phase in diverse interaction situations. Phase is especially problematic in emotionally threatening situations or identity vulnerable situations, whether it's embarrassment situation or situation that you have to call, uh, maybe you have to think of apologizing or not or you might ask someone to forgive you, and you're in a dilemma to ask for forgiveness or not, to apologize or not, and of course, in dealing with conflict. Conflict is really an emotionally laden, anxious situation. So now, you have flushing face, right? First level, uh, maybe a little bit uh, emotionally aroused. 
And then we also say that assumption three, that the cultural spectrum of individualism, collectivism, and the spectrum of small and large power distance have some kind of influence on face orientation, movements, content, and styles of face work in particular conflict situation. So how I define face, on the surface level, face is really a social persona, all right? At least in the Western notion, they equate with impression management, especially Goffman's work, Irving Goffman, all right? And also very self-faith focused. Uh, it's really about a sense of social self-image that we want to train and then we we'll want other people to respect. However, face, at least my understanding from the Asian notion of face, a little bit go deeper, all right? Manzi, Gun Lan. Lan is one sense, a lot of emotional complex involving face, shame issue, uh, social self-worth issue, guilt issue, all that stuff. It's also really involved beyond affective emotional complex. It's really a cognitive appraisal. How much face should I give you? All right, in terms of big face versus medium versus small face. When I asked my students, actually in my beginning research project, I did a lot of qualitative interpretive work of interviewing across different nations, countries. Uh, and I realized the US, at least for the US college students, they really understand face in terms of self-face saving. How do I save my own face? You see, I don't want to get embarrassed, so I will save my own face. So I say, what do you think of face giving? <laughs> and then usually the interpretation, oh, face giving means I'm in your face. <laughs> well, I think maybe this is the Western notion of face, but maybe the Asian uh, giving face actually is honoring someone, uplifting someone's face, or you never embarrass someone to such a degree that he or she could not retrieve his or her face. Uh, like I said before, my research method is actually very multidimensional. I've done an acutement missile crisis, case study method uh, from a very long time ago to the reason on the killing, because there is, of course, face seems to be a very constructive construct, positive construct in the Chinese culture at least. But there's also the dark side of face that I think we'll talk about when we talk about ethical issues. So face, at least in my research at this point, we have found four types of face, whether you're self-face focused, other face sensitive, mutual face negotiation in conflict, and of course communal face, all right? Next slide actually is how could we understand culture and then tying it with face? In our research also, we did say that maybe we have been watching, uh, I don't know, Titanic one more time too many in the, in the cultural field. So this is the iceberg model. We say that in order to understand people's behavior, this is the surface level, pop culture level, and most people feel like, yeah, Paris and London and Tokyo and Shanghai, we are all the same, but maybe they are same like me in my culture. So they might have a little bit more ethnocentric attitude interpreting the surface level. But we are seeing that in order to really understand a culture, whether it's about the, the language, the verbal and nonverbal negotiation level, or even surface level, we really have to understand the deep level, the culture tradition, the culture customs, uh, especially when we talk about terms like relational karma or dharma, all those are deeper concepts of culture um, that's embedded in the iceberg, and the deeper level of the iceberg a lot of time drive communication patterns, all right? I also want to really focus on, also at some point, we could talk about the super deep level of human connection, and I think this really tie in with the ethical issues of studying intercultural competency because at some point we are so successful about cultural differences, we, we forgot that in the deep level, human does share some commonality, human respect, human compassion, uh, the need for meaning, all that stuff. 
So that's what this iceberg is all about, to pull attention to the different level, whether it's the explanatory values uh, that explain some of the communication patterns and meaning construction on the middle level, or maybe uh, the disconnect with that. So in our teaching and training and research, we do go to the deeper level of the iceberg um, to try to explain and try to make sense of what's going on, right? The sense-making process, what I deem as totally logical, you might think is totally bizarre, all right? So here is one slide. Um, this is, of course, and actually it's very controversial, draw from, first of all, Gert Hofstadter's work a long time ago, and then there's Harry Triangles in cross-cultural psychology. Uh, and also interculturalists do use this, that basically according to Gert Helfstedt's work or Harry Triander's work, that if you want to understand culture, maybe you could go to some of the value dimensions, all right? At this time, actually the Helfstedt will have six dimensions, but I'd like to focus on two. And basically those two dimensions on the spectrum level, so use your imagination, although most people see it as dichotomous, but see it as a spectrum or continuum of differences individualistic versus collectivistic cultural value issues. The left side, typically we talk about the larger US mainstream culture is more individualistic based, maybe the Western European culture, Germany, uh, Switzerland, many of the Nordic countries have been identified more as more identity based. If you subscribe to more the individualistic value tendency, you believe in I identity to supersede the we identity. The person who stands alone will inspire someone's imagination. Whereas the other side will say, the nail that sticks out get hammered down, right? So there's really some differences. If you subscribe to some individualistic outlook or you are your, your personality style is more independent self, then you really believe in individual rights, right? I have individual rights, I have individual choices, that the more choices are better, all right, for individualistic society, and anytime there's some kind of decision affect me, I should have the right to choose. Uh, I don't know how many of you have uh, seen the TED Talk, The Art of Choosing, by Professor Inger, a beautiful TED Talk, that he, she talked about in the US culture compared to the French culture. US culture, even if the kid was really sick, in the end, someone have to make a choice uh, to, to unplug the machine. The US culture, the parents will be what? They like to make their own decision. Whereas the French culture, they would like to defer to the expert doctor. Even research will say that in the individualistic culture, after the parents make the choice, they really feel guilty and remorse for many more months to go. But even knowing the research result, the parents will say, I want to be responsible for the choice of my own kid. Whereas the French culture will say, I will defer more to the expert, and actually they recover a little bit faster to even a little bit more appreciative, maybe even for the short, short lifespan um, of the kids also. So, so here are some of the differences. Basically, if you subscribe to more individualistic outlook or independent self-personality, you're a little bit more self-face oriented. This is actually according to my finding. Expression in conflict between self-face and other-face, between asserting your self-identity as versus respecting the other person's interests, especially in the conflict situation we might likely more protect our self-face versus um, extend the courtesy of constraining the other face. In individualistic culture, I also find out people tend to really talk about boundary issue, privacy issue, and also use more direct face or whatever it's called, called low context communication approach. In the collectivistic culture, such as China, Mexico, 
when we use the we identity outlook, um, first of all, in the uh, collectivist culture also make a clearer distinction between in-group and out-group. One of us versus one of them. It takes time from out-group to go to the in-group, but even the in-group, you might be taking, taking care for a long time, all right? Uh, but because collectivistic culture, everyone knows everyone's business, <laughs> so they are a little more careful. So in terms of communication style, they tend to be more tactful, more indirect, more high context spiral logic in order not to hurt the other person's feeling. They like to generate harmony uh, before in terms of um, provoking the other persons and bringing shame to the other person. More important in the collectivistic culture, they really emphasize communal faith, uh, uh, relational dignity, prestige, shame, especially family reputation and honor. Uh, let me just give you a little story. When I first started came to, I was uh, probably the first set of a student, freshman student to University of Iowa from Hong Kong was packing. And at some point it was 9.30 a.m. flight and at 4 a.m. my mom just knocked on my, my door and say, okay, Pearl, this is my Chinese real name, okay. But I was born in Hong Kong, it was a British colony, so I was oppressed and have an English name, okay. Pearl, daughter, my mom say, I, I know you're packing, but I just want to let you know when you go out there in America, make sure you really safe, be really good, get all the A's so that you can preserve the Ting's family's name. I said, okay, mom, okay, great, all right. So I will get Ting. At some point, my mom, at five o'clock, she knocked on the door again and say, okay, daughter, when you go out, so not a lot of female at that point, okay, this is 1970s. When you go out, actually, you should really uphold the Chinese face. All right, so there's not a lot of Chinese women going overseas, wherever they are going. I still don't know where I was going, actually. Actually, I picked two, three universities, Bowling Green State, um, Iowa, U of Iowa, and Hawaii. Since I'm a very karma and dharma person, <laughs> I have no idea what those three universities were all about. So I asked my young brother, eight years old, pick one, and he picked Iowa. So I decided it's my fate, my karma to go to Iowa. And I didn't even look at the map. I was imagining Iowa was like Chicago, New York City, and LA, was I surprised. <laughs> when I landed in Iowa, Cedar Rapids at that point, it was like a hut. There was no airport, like, I really thought I was kidnapped. And then when I was taking the bus shuttle, I, there was no people. There's only cows and pigs and cornfields. So that might also spark my interest to study intercultural because I was totally, totally unprepared, totally, culturally incompetent, totally a culture shock. But at some point, my mom at five o'clock so said, okay, try to uphold the Chinese face. I said, okay, I, I know. And then at six o'clock, my mom knocked on my door again and said, okay, Pearl daughter, I just decided. Americans probably don't know the difference between Chinese, Korean, and Japanese. So you should really uphold your Asian yellow face. Okay? You might be the one yellow face among a lot of white faces. You should be upholding your yellow face. Okay, Ma, I said, okay, I have to really pack now. Oh, I don't know where I'm going anyways. <laughs> At six, four, five, six, I'll call my mom out on the door and say, all right, daughter, Pearl. At this time, this is the last time. My, my life lesson for you, when you go out, you should uphold the woman's face. <laughs> all right? Then make sure don't lose face for the women groups because you will be noticed because you'll be very competitive out in the American world. And I heard that those American boys are very competitive. So make sure you don't lose the women's face off for all, all women. <laughs> well, no pressure. So this is what we are, communal face. But in the end, at 7 o'clock, my father came in and knocked on the door and say, okay, why don't you 
Actually, I know that your mom gave you a lot of precious life lesson, but I just want to let you know one thing is when you go out and stand in front of the audience or anyone in your classmate, you should never lose your human face. <laughs> so maintain your human dignity. So this is my illustration. That's the collectivistic outlook, right? That's why in a lot of Asian countries, our family name is the top, not at the bottom. All right, because we represent our family name first and foremost through collectivism. So here are some based on research findings. In the beginning of my research, I do go to the national culture level, what kind of countries do what in terms of conflict styles. So for example, we did find that in the larger US culture or German culture respondent, this is our college students, they tend to use more direct self-saving type of conflict strategies, such as dominating, competing, and very assertive conflict styles, etc. Of course, realize that uh, America is really a very diverse country, so I have done also a lot of work on ethnic identity issue. And in fact, ethnic identity is a better predictor than, of course, this overall thing, the larger culture. So such as, for example, if you are Mexican-American, but you're very assimilated identity, that means your content of your value is very individualistic, you will also move towards using more competing conflict styles. However, if you're Mexican-American or Chinese-American, but retain very strong ethnic values, such as very collectivistic group orientation outlook, then you might go to the next level. You might tend to use a little more obliging, avoiding conflict styles, or even prefer third-party consultation. Right? So on the national level, I did find out that Taiwan, China, and Mexico actually tend towards more indirect, other face-sensitive conflict styles, more so than the individualist. Uh, one thing by doing cross-cultural research to me is just very fun and inspirational is for the longest time in our U.S. larger culture, and I think we still use that conflict grid, we always put avoiding conflict style. Avoiding is really low concern for self-interest, low concern for other interests. But during my research of international cross-cultural conflict style, a lot of people say when I avoid conflict, it's not actually that I have no interest, I have no interest to push for my con conflict interest, or respect, but it's just I need some time to cool down, or I'm sensitive to the other pe people's feeling. So avoidance conflict type tends to be a little more face sensitive, other orientation conflict styles, such as also compromising to me is always very fascinating because in the classic grid of conflict styles, compromising is the middle. It's called moderate concern for self-interest, moderate concern for other interests. And compromising is always like, you can't get 100% of what you want, all right, so if a seller wants to sell the house for 350000 and you want to buy it for 250, we just say, all right, we don't have time, so let's just cut a deal, 300000 So compromising, so in one sense, no one is happy, the seller didn't get right, 350000 and the buyer did not get uh, the cheaper rate. So you might even walk away, not too happy, but at least it's a done deal. All right, so it's really very instrumental in terms of compromising style, but not necessarily talk about relational. However, when I follow up with some interview after the research, with some of the um, informants of the different cultures, they say, when I think of compromising, I don't think it's just task and instrumental level. I was talking about give and take. Sometimes I give, sometimes I take, but in the big picture of our long-term relationship development, we will even out. So they really focus a little bit more on the relational give and take concession above and beyond instrumental content type of compromise. Uh, another thing interesting is about the Japanese, especially very early on, we did find out the Japanese conception of in-group outgroup is so strong, it's just depending on what kind of conflicts you have, with 
out group, they could be as competitive as dominating, whereas when you go to the in group, then the story start changing, it depending on what types of in group. Are you the inner in group, we could try to be ourselves, or you're just a familiar in group, then I have to be more face sensitive. The next slide is really talk about complexifying some of the national culture finding now. To talk about, of course, we know that people are not replica of their culture. Just because you are from China doesn't mean that you are collectivistic. You could be very individualistic, very independent self, and you find a new home, right? <laughs> okay. And vice versa, some of you that go to Shanghai and love Shanghai, and maybe you also are very interdependent, there might be a goodness of fit between your personality style and the cultural norms, right? So personality is one of the dimensions, Marcus and Kitayama have independent self-control, interdependent. Those are the personality factors. There's also a third factor called relational self-control, which I think is very important, because interdependence is about group membership belonging, whereas relational is significant relationship. Some of you could be very independent, actually I'm thinking of my son, <laughs> and he's not interdependent, he's not group, but he does, when he really need to make decision, he go to the most close group, myself, the mom, <laughs> and also uh, the girlfriend. So he really treasured those relational self-control type of uh, factor. The recent study we have, we add some more emotional component because study of phase and conflict styles uh, seems like logically connected. People who have some anger reaction towards conflict tend to be more independent self and self-phase concern and also use competing conflict styles. Whereas people who tend to have express a little bit more compassion, empathy for the other person's conflict position, tend to really relate with their interdependent personality style, other face concern, and tend to use more collaborative, compromising, and obliging style. Okay. Another dimension that actually uh, that really guided some of our work. Um, is called power distance. Power distance is formality, informality issue, respect is respect issue. If you're in the small power distance or you subscribe to horizontal self-personality style, uh, you might be very casual. Call me by my first name, call me Stella, call me Stain. I don't really care. <laughs> Just don't call me any bad names. Right? So it could be very casual base a little bit. You prefer informality. Uh, so we call it the horizontal face work. In conflict, we could say the best person will win, regardless of your title, your position. And when we want someone to resolve conflict, we prefer to go to an impartial third party because she or he is more objective, right? We want objective position, a lawyer, a mediator, all that to try to mediate the conflict. However, large power distance in conjunction with collectivists say, how could an objective person know the history of my 35 years of marriage? All right, or my, uh, my 3,000 years of conflict between Palestine and also uh, Israel. So large power distant people, a little more formality, prefer to be called by the title, vertical face work. The idea of uh, age, seniority, rank, roles is really important. Call people by the right title, especially age, like if you're older, you'll have my respect, all right. Uh, Stepper-based face work, if you are older, you are my supervisor, if my dean, you tell me what's good for me. It's just like many of my Asian internationals come, when they come to, for a thesis topic, American students, in one sense, they operate from individualistic Western notion, so they will have some thesis topic in mind and say, you know, I have three topics, so I just want your guidance, which one is better? But what, Asian international students, what do you think? The professors should know better, right? That's why they pay so expensive money to come and study with me. So they want to know what is the hot topic? What should I research? 
So they come from a very like, large power distance. When they are in the supervisee or the lower position, they will seek help from the higher status person. So they also expect that when they have conflict, they could go to a trusted friend for advice and also maybe wise elders to solve the conflict problem. So rather than solving the conflict between themselves, they may say, oh, for the face of someone, let's just learn to get along with friends, okay? So here it is, a little bit of complexity now, all right? Even if we look at the dimensions, seem very polarized, two dimensions. Actually, even in 2001, Dr. John Esso and I have done a lot of work in terms of folding the two dimensions into a four-grid position, whether it's individualism, small power distance, the impartial, objective conflict styles, the rules and regulation, uh, no one is exempted, regardless whether you are the low-ranked person, high-status person, we have a set of procedures uh, how to mediate conflict. If you violate some workplace uh, issues, equal treatment, all right? Dentist's achievement is that people from individualistic, but I work hard, work hard to get to the top. So I kind of implicitly like people to, like people to respect, even maybe Apparently, on the surface level, you say, call me by the first name. However, attitudinally, I know where my president is. She is not on the bottom of my floor. She's the top power floor, okay? So verbally, they might suspend the title, but actually, in one sense, some of the research say U.S. culture, what do you think? Here or here? Especially large corporation is here, all right? A lot of Nordic countries really here, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, but U.S. overall seems to be, if you work hard to get UR, people do like the recognition, okay? And then we also say that actually a large chunk of corporate culture is the benevolent conflict approach, collectivism, adding with large power distance. Benevolent is like the parents, all right, the authoritarian parents, they know what is good for you. So if the Asian American parents are really still very benevolent, they will want to tell the student what, what to major engineer, computer, medical, whereas the children will be, I want the free choice, individualistic. And that causes a lot of stress, especially in a multicultural society like the U.S., that I do feel the schism between the traditional collectivistic parents, whether they're Mexican parents or Chinese parents, or there's a famous book, Tiger Mom book, <laughs> that other people read the Tiger Mom book and think that, wow, she never even let the children to go to pajama party and all they do is study, study, study and learn to play piano for five hours every day. Whereas when they interview the, the kids, what did they say? They actually appreciate the parents because of my parents working us, making us such a strong self-discipline. Therefore, where I am today in Harvard. Okay, so quite interesting. So benevolent approach and communal conflict approach is really the least practice. Uh, collectivism at a small power distance. Usually when you're a small entrepreneurial company, you could afford to be more communal. You consult everyone's ideas, right, before decision making, again, regardless of your rank and status. So this might be a very interesting thing to think about, but basically I just want to tell you the complexity of our intercultural conflict competency research, where we are. We also, another term is uh, whether you come from impartial or particularistic standards in terms of mediating conflict. Uh, these are all the situational and relational findings. We also say that to complexify our understanding, who, who are your in-group, who are your out-group? At the same time, let's say we, we use the big term called collectivism, but Latin, Latin American collectivism is very different from African collectivism and very different from Asian collectivism, right? So there are different types of collectivism, maybe the out-group, in-group, at least for the Japanese and Chinese, we have four levels, peripheral out-group, 
basically we don't have any type of connected faith, people could be very rude to you. Sometimes, sometimes Americans will say, wow, you know, when I go to Japan, I go to China, people seem so rude. They say, well, because they don't have one shoe with you, so, so you are a non-person yet. Until they express some relationship, then we start negotiating some of those proper and effective uh, communication styles. So we could have peripheral outgroup and also familiar outgroup. Familiar outgroup, we have to be a little bit careful because I might see you in the next conference. <laughs> we are not in the, even if we are not in the same college and all that. So I'm a little cautious in terms of, and I hope I don't lose face in front of my peripheral outgroup, uh, in the familiar outgroup. In-group also, it could be your familiar in-group. All right, it could be your very inner intimate in-group. And there might be different conflict styles, communication styles. Some interesting for undergrad, especially male, female, interesting. We do find that actually male, and there's some commonality across cultures. Male, at least in terms of where workplace, they do tend to use more competing, assertive conflict styles. Female tends to use more relational and also instrumental, compromising, give and take conflict styles. But however, in intimate relationship, it's actually reverse. Female tend to what? Want to confront conflict. They want to talk about the relationship, they want to confront conflict, whereas male, when there's no big deal, they want to just flee the scene, when there's no problem, why do we need to talk about it? So it's quite interesting. And this is actually finding cut across cultures, that female tend to want to more approach problematic issues in their relationship as versus male. This is the, the model we try to test with Dr. John Petzl and also many of our graduate students and sometimes undergraduate students. So this is how this all pan out and all the things that I talk about. Okay. So the last few slides is really about knowledge, culture-sensitive knowledge. Now I want to switch frame, especially when I do training every summer. I do training for the Intercultural Communication Institute in Portland. I also done, have done a lot of training for corporations and also nonprofit organizations. So beyond giving them the knowledge, we do train about ethnocentrism and ethno-relativism. So what is ethnocentrism, our ethno-relative attitude? This is a very standard definitional issues. When we behave or think in ethnocentric way, we think our culture is the best culture, ours is the most civilized way to behave. Uh, our way is normal, your way is abnormal or deviant. We also act in conscious or unconscious way, so it doesn't have to be intentionally you're ethnocentric. The fact that you're socialized in your home culture for the last 18 or 21, 24 or 64 years, you pick up your culture. So that even when I came here as a youngster, um, late uh, in the teen, I think my Chinese conditioning culture still carried with me after all this year. So I think I'll actually very early form, by the time you're six years old, by 12 years, it's pretty crystallized in the sense of I was really socialized in a very traditional Confucius ethics family system. The fact that sometimes I think immigrants, refugees, moving from another country to a new land, actually sometimes, in my own defense, I think, uh, I think they preserve more the cultural tradition because there's a sense of rootlessness. So your parents actually push you more. Every morning, five years old to 15, my father will say, write in calibrate, big letter, small letter with a paintbrush. Never vary. And I think that's how I learned my self-discipline. So it's always interesting um, to think about the diaspora and the immigrant community and how they carry the culture traditions um, from their home-based culture now to their new acculturated environment. 
Okay, so we have a term in the intercultural called ethno-relativism, and we say that when we teach people or train people, we want to move them from ethnocentric state to ethno-relative attitude. Ethno-relative attitude is basically cultural perspective taking, seeing things from the other person's cultural viewpoint, whether it's the Chinese seeing things from the larger US cultural viewpoint, or the US going to China, seeing things from the Chinese viewpoint, understanding their concept maybe of collectivism, of filial piety, some large power distance respect issues, as versus maybe some of the international or students coming here, they may have to start learning about the individualistic way of thinking and of behaving. So basically we're saying developing cultural empathy on the CBA level, cognitive behavioral affective level. This one is a training slide by Janet Banner and Milton Banner. They also have an assessment. In terms of moving, they use this a lot in the corporate system level or the individual level, moving people from ethnocentric state to the ethno-relative state. They have identified three states of ethnocentrism, whether it's the state of denial, denial that actually doesn't exist, which is probably impossible nowadays, but people do if you put yourself in isolation, all right? If they move in, you start moving out, because you don't welcome the minority or whatever the identity group you feel com don't feel comfortable. So you deny even the existence of cultural value difference exists or communication style exists. Sometimes you recognize the differences, but you become defensive. We are different, but you are threatened, all right? Economic downturn, you're probably very threatened by immigrants, refugees coming, so you get very defensive and using a superior attitude to judge those inferior group in the bizarre way that why don't they use fork and knife and, and uh, chopsticks as versus using a hand to eat, whereas that could be a cultural in India, all right, or Ethiopia, uh, so. Minimization, you recognize cultural differences, but you minimize the differences. You still think that people are the same, they are same like my cultural group. And then at some point, maybe we could train people to go to the acceptance, adaptation, integration. Acceptance is accepting cultural differences all right, realizing that indeed there are some cultural value differences, direct and indirect communication style differences. Um, at some point, you might do behavioral adaptation. So from understanding, you behaviorally code switch. All right, whether you are a very tactful, circumspective person, but now you realize that if you don't be a little bit upfront, no one will know what you want, especially in the corporate world in the US, you better do some self-promotion. So you need to do a little behavioral adaptation to get your raise, to get your merit increase, to get your nice office. Uh, finally, integration is that if cognitive, affective, behaviorally, you are in sync now, that you have combined the best practices of both culture, whether it's the Chinese and the US or the Indian and the Turkey culture, all those combined together uh, and become who you are um, and, and have sense of identity coherency. Are you with me still? No questions? We'll save the questions. In the training, what do I usually train people? Um, th those are some of the skills that you're looking at in the slide, whether it's called the old this method, training my trainees or students to learn to observe, all right? America is very action-oriented, but we want to hold back the students and say, learn to observe, observe a little bit more, multiple observations, all right? And also, when you go to a new place, that if you only visited Los Angeles or visited Orange County, uh, you probably don't know that much about the culture. All right, you really have to observe, observe a variety of people in different cultural regions to go get a holistic sense of what Chinese culture is about or what larger US culture is about. 
So observe, learn to describe in neutrally toned language, learn to generate multiple interpretations from my cultural perspective, looking at someone with eye contact is respectful. However, maybe from the Thai cultural perspective or the Vietnamese cultural perspective, when a young child looking at an elderly person, maybe she or he could avoid eye contact. So you have to go pretty specific because nonverbal is very situational based. So prescriptive nature of this culture does not use eye contact, this culture does, um, that might create some confusion and even intercultural incompetency in the nonverbal style. And the whole idea of all this method is to suspend ethnocentric judgment because it's just very natural. That if you're not accustomed to that behavioral difference, you might really keep on pushing your ethnocentric tendency of why is the person not looking me in the eyes? Or why is the person looking at my eyes too much? It seems like pretty overbearing and over aggressive. So we might use our cultural interpretation. In my training, I do a lot of mindful listening because America is the talkative culture. Listening is actually harder to learn, especially when you go deep. Now you have to teach the student not to just listen to the content, meaning level of your, the words that people are talking to you, but the relational level, relational expectation, and also identity meaning, the stories behind the words may be very important. I also do a lot of uh, training, empathic and tutoring process, three chair exercise, you could put people in the three chair. They first tell the story, they will rotate to another chair to tell the story from the other person's viewpoint. Uh, it's a very effective exercise, but it will take one hour and a half to do. <coughs> but if you want to do it well, you probably have to do it. We also teach people a lot of behavioral code switching, role playing, low context, direct style, indirect styles, depending on situation. So a lot of coaching session. We could also talk about people's skillful conflict management, reframing skill, all that stuff. Mindful common ground dialogue, difficult conversation, difficult dialogue, how to handle that. Um, figure eight dance thinking is that rather than see individualistic, collectivistic, and dichotomous polarized term, how do you meander the figure eight? All right, in fact, actually, there's a recent thesis, my son <laughs> Adrian to me. He actually interviewed a lot of bicultural kids in terms of how do they meander in terms of when they speak to the Asian peers, Chinese peers, and they speak to their other American kid. And she did find out some of the more creative bicultural really use a figure eight dance in terms of meandering between the individualistic and collectivistic zone of communication. We also talk a lot about parallel thinking. Parallel thinking is that you might not care a lot about how other people are feeling, thinking, especially all the big news. But however, if you substitute that this is your brother or your sister, all right, uh, in this particular incident, will you care more? And I think students seem to like the parallel thinking. And in the end, about competent intercultural communication, we are talking about the importance of teaching and coaching people internal frame shifting and also external behavioral code switching. And a lot of my work also used the hook of mindfulness to hook all together. This is a fun undergrad slide. Some of you might have seen it. This is by William Howell. If I just put it in the staircase model. When you behave unconscious incompetency, you are fully mindless. I mean, you may be using your left hand to eat in, uh, in India, but you should be using your right, but you didn't know better, all right? Maybe if there's a cultural bridge to coach you, you'll get to the conscious incompetency stage, a little bit mindful, a little bit mindless, start trial and error. But at some point, some of you might get to the conscious competency stage. This is the full mindfulness stage, intentionally integrating culture-sensitive knowledge, ethno-relative attitude, and behavioral code switching to adapt to the new cultural situation. 
Finally, some of you might get to the unconscious competency stage. This is the Zen stage. Some of you practice martial art. <laughs> you might know what I mean. It's being mindlessly mindful. Or if you are very fluent bilingual, English and Chinese, English and, and Japanese, or Japanese and Chinese, you could code switch in such a fast way, you don't even realize that when some of my students speak to the grandparents who speak Spanish, they turn around and speak to the brother and sister will be in English. So you get to such a Zen state, you're not intentionally doing it, that whether I'm speaking English or speaking Chinese, you already internalize, but at the same time, you don't want to be totally mindless because then you'll fall down the staircase to be full mindless, right? Also, mindfulness is a co-orientation thing. Just because you think you're very mindful, other people think you're very mindless. So mindfulness is a fun thing to play with, whether it's theorizing, researching, or practice. Um, so with that, this is from my mindfulness of research and theorizing is based on two, two uh, areas. One is the language mindfulness. She really talked more about reflective, about other people, being aware of outside, other people's perspective, their cultural perspective, values, and norms. I do, I do draw a lot from the mindful reflexivity from a, more the Buddhist tradition. Mindfulness is tuning into yourself, the self-awareness, all right? Hearing out the noises, the clutters, and also emptying your mindset. And this word is called Tain. Hey, sound like my name, but my name is actually just two stroke, not this one. And in Chinese, mindful, uh, mindful Tain is means what? Mindfully listen with your ears, your eyes and your focused, one-pointed heart. So I love Chinese character. <laughs> when in doubt, I go back to Chinese. Like, let me look at the pictographs, see what it says. All right, so this conference is about ethics. We're into ethics. <laughs> Defining ethics. So what is ethics? We hear about some of the cross-cultural differences. So, so how do we conceptualize ethics? Ethic is really a set of beliefs, whether philosophical assumption or set of beliefs on how standards should be set and what standards should be followed. But as you hear from my talk, so now you understand cultural differences. Should we be following individualistic ethics, Aristotle, Plato ethics, or should we be following Confucius ethics, Buddhist ethics, all that stuff? So that's a serious issue to consider when you start thinking about ethics in promoting, developing intercultural competency. Ethics is also about guiding a community or individual's capacity and responsibility. And I think that really is the one that really we should focus on when we are training and teaching students. What is our ethical responsibility to our fellow human beings beyond cultural? As a, as a human being, what responsibility, what service could we contribute to make this a meaningful life? So now I'm getting to the deeper level of the iceberg as opposed to the surface level of pop culture differences. Ethics is also about making sensible choice and decision. And the key term is sensible. What I think is very sensible, you might not think is very sensible. What I think is sensible to be very tactful, that if I know that my mom is very sick and I have a choice between telling her the truth as versus very tactful, not telling, I will not tell. That's my decision. So you might think honesty is the best policy, but there's so many situational things that um, in another research uh, by Trump and all, uh, he actually did give a case study to the managers and say that your close friend had been driving uh, 30, 35 miles per hour, but you should be driving 20 and hit a pedestrian. And your close friend lawyer asked you to testify in terms of your friend who's driving 20 miles per hour. Will you testify or not? Do you think your friend has a right? 
And many of the Nordic managers, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, larger than US, Canada, they say no. They use impartial, law of the law, right? We have to tell the truth. However, uh, Nepalese managers, Chinese managers, Mexican managers, what do they say? They will say it depends. First of all, how hurt is this person? <laughs> and then how long is my friend going to the prison? <laughs> so they asked all these contextual questions, but they could not answer yes, no, that I'm not going to testify. Then if I say, is this your father, and your father is 85, will you testify? And most of them say, no, if it's really my network, I'm not going to testify. So basically I'm saying ethics is a very tricky thing, right? We could say we, we want to use universalistic ethics, but in three-fourths of the world population, they might subscribe to some particularistic ethics, so we'll be aware of it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but we could debate about that very soon. Okay. So ethical issues. Since we have such bountiful research findings, training, application, intercultural, I would like to raise some issue of what are some problems. So to me, those are some of the ethical issues. When you theorize and research about cross-cultural communication, we are so excited about our research different finding that China is very different from US. Sometimes I think we gloss over similarity in the, in the excitement of differences. So I want to draw your attention to that for future research direction. Also, of course, using individualism, collectivism, and power distance, many critics also have been saying that it's such a polarized, dichotomous perspective, and, and culture is one sense very gradation, complex, dynamic, people change. So I think that's a good critique. Also, a lot of time, we also gloss over a lot of within culture differences so that we pit, for example, China versus US, but really don't know enough about China as versus Korea, as versus Japan, versus India. What are the similarity and differences? So I think we should pay more attention to regional differences within an area, all right, so that we know that also Brazil and Chile and Panama, what are some of the differences, as just everything is Latin American cultural zone. Um, also, we are neglecting the intersecting nature of identities. So I think to me, at least my work actually be really talk about identity complexity issue, and I think that should be a key piece in our teaching and training and research. So since I asked all this question, I will answer them myself. <laughs> Sounds good. We say that we oversize cross-cultural communication differences, neglecting similarity. So I like to come back to the iceberg model, look deeper, that I do think that yes, indeed, we should think about differences, but on the deep level of the iceberg, not on the surface level, ethnocentric similarity. At the deep super level, I do believe now, as we talk about human rights issue, ethics issue, we should start thinking about the deep level, human commonality, all right, whether the need for respect, connection, security, a sense of meaning, a sense of dignity, all that would be very critical. Most important, start really emphasizing also our interdependent fate on this global world. Second, polarized cultural value dimensions. Actually in 2010, I wrote an article already about the dialectical nature of individualism and collectivism that rather than see as polarized, try to see it as complementary or the yin-yang outlook, all right? I think sometimes the language issue that I think in, in some language we really talk about gradation where it's in the English language, it's such a categorical language, so it's easy to jump people to left and right, uh, dark and light. But in a lot of world language, we really use gradation, and maybe that's something that maybe other cultural world could learn from another region. We also talk about glossing over within culture differences, and I believe that, yes, we 
So it seems to be we do constantly compare Asian versus Western. So I do believe we should really focus on maybe, you know, uh, uh, focus on whether the Asian region compared to the Latin region or African region, Middle Eastern region, some of the possible similarity and differences. I also think that we should really focus on identity. At this point in life, we are highly mobile people, so many of you already crossed cultural boundaries five or ten times. We can't really call the base of, are you a Chinese person, are you an American person? All right, immigrants, refugees, temporary workers, we now have very mobile, hybrid identity, all right, and really could not pick a static identity to name who I am. And I think we should ask people to understand and respect that identity. Recommendation, I think really talking about cultural shift, cultural change, diaspora community, I think will do us good in terms of our researching of um, intercultural competency. Basically, I'm advocating for a paradigm shift, all right, to, to look at things from a more dynamic, more complex, more intersecting identity viewpoint. Uh, again, whether it's with Dr. John Etzel or Dr. Tenzin Dorji, we have done a lot of work issues of social ecological model. I love this model. And I think some of you already presented it. This is really from family system and also healthcare communication model. Social ecological model is a very well, good organizing model. We are seeing that if you really want to understand the complexity of human behavior, you have to think of them in four levels, macro, exo, meso, micro, and actually the fifth one, temporal. Macro is the cultural worldview level, all right, maybe the religious traditions, beliefs, and all that. Uh, exo is the institutional policies, all right? If you want to change some cultural custom or traditions, that sometimes institutional policy of banning that is the best way, right, or promoting it is the best way, uh, environmental conservation, all that stuff. Uh, Maso is the immediate uh, community you are in, how that affected uh, this uh, behavior. Micro is micro interpersonal level, conflict negotiation or whatever you're doing. Temporal is developmentally, and I know some of you are historian. I do believe that knowing history is our first important goal in the sense of if you don't know the, the history of, let's say, intercultural communication, it's hard for you to develop intercultural communication forward. So knowing the history, whether it's of a country, of a discipline, I think will give you more mileage to move forward. And finally, implication for teaching and training. So here's the fun part. I think if some of you are very successful intercultural teacher and trainer, you now move your training from ethnocentric mindset to a high, highly ethno-relative mindset. You also now teach them a lot of flexible communication skill between low context direct to high context and vice versa. At some point, your trainee or your student might feel very lost. And I heard this word actually on the system level, the loss, China, in terms of self-reflection of the generation loss of who are we as Chinese or who are we as American. Um, you might become some encapsulated marginal. Encapsulated marginal is you're trapped by your identity. A sense of insecurity. Although I don't see this term as very negative, to me it's part of the search process of who I am whether it's on an individual level or macro level, as you develop something new and move forward, I think most people may get encapsulated into the sense of insecurity, self-examination, sometimes it's a very good thing. Uh, in our field, we also have another term called constructive marginal, that you actually creative, creatively now piece together your Japanese, Chinese, US identity, and have that multicultural lens to look at the world, and that's also a very wonderful thing. 
So basically I'm saying that as we are very successful in our training teaching, we also aware we could train ourselves and our students be so flexible, they get very confused. I have many students that come to me after my intercultural class and oh, I'm really confused. I understand my parents' point of view, but at the same time, they still do all this old fashioned traditional Indian way of wanting to select a boyfriend, a spouse for me and all that. And they are totally now lost. So I think we have ethical responsibility as a teacher and trainer in terms of how to coach our students to move forward. I still have time, right? Yeah, time. So here are the three things that we typically talk about intercultural in training, ethical absolutism, relativism, and universalism position. Ethical absolutism position is basically colonial ethical standpoint. A culture, dominant culture imposes some kind of standard into the marginalized culture, um, but they will think that they have the authority to do this and everyone should follow. Ethical relativism is really the one that I want to follow, is that if you are so successful in training, students become so ethically relative, everything is about culture. They say, oh, we shouldn't intrude, we shouldn't say anything. That maybe female genital mutilation is a culture thing. Or uh, in the next slide, I'm gonna show you something that I want to know whether it's, it's a culture thing or is it's an intolerable cultural practice. Ethical relativism, but basically I'm saying, if you are so successful as a teacher and trainer, they're teaching them to be so flexible, you have to rein yourself in now, and really teach them how to think ethically on a human universal level. The human universal is the ideal that interculturalists strive for, but I feel like we have not been there, that at some point maybe we could really dialogue some more, or having the cross-cultural education center and all that through those venues to really talk about more humanistic, global concern. But at this point, when people use the word universal, they might be imposing their Eurocentric, US-centric, whatever viewpoint on the other cultural practice. Hey, this is like my grandmother's found feet. <laughs> it's not my grandmother, but I borrowed the slide. Do you know what's found feet? Okay, uh, it's probably started in Tang, Tang and Song Dynasty. For a while it faded away, it started with the court dancers, so they bound their feet to make it dainty and make it dance nice. And then at a certain point, it dropped out, but in the 17th century, it was popular again. But most important, uh, people in the upper class, rich family, especially they bound the feet to what? To show that you don't need to work. All you need to is to please your husband and supervise your servant. So there's a patriarchal norm here. So my grandmother actually had bound feet. And the famous thing is you want to bound the feet to three inches usually start off with three or four or five years old, and it take many months. It's very, very painful. You break the arch of the, the feet of the little girl, and you bound it in the herbal medicine and the animal blood medicine. And um, yeah, so I saw my grandmother bound feet. Um, so my point is that this cultural relative practice, and sometimes you bound the feet, the, uh, the girls could not marry off, right, in those days. But to me, there's a human right issue. When you cause suffering, unjust suffering to someone else, I think we should stand up uh, and be counted. So to me, I would see this as intolerable cultural practice. But as we look at China, don't forget, in the Victorian age, we what, had the corset that wasn't wear that you bound the waist until 16 inches. So let's not be ethnocentric. Every culture has their own thing, okay? In the end, how was intolerable cultural practice uh, 
uh, eliminated is by education. Education, whether it's insider or outsider, feminist, I think there's one, a woman called Bridget, Bridget uh, Kwan. She was the leader also in the banning of the boundary movement in 1949, institutionally on the EXO level, then People's Republic of China actually stopped the boundary practice. So basically, this is the last, we talked about the three choices of ethic, but in the end, at this point in the intercultural competency piece, we do practice what I would like to call the meta-ethics contextualism. Meta-ethic is really an ethical way of thinking beyond just the three ideological issues about ethical relativism, ethical absolutism, ethical universalism. It's really a fact-finding, multiple interpretation method. It's very time-consuming, but spending the time may be worth it as versus keep on talking about debating all the minuses, pluses, so generating multiple perspectives, especially the social justice and social action perspective. So here are some of the questions I think you should raise if you buy into the meta-ethics perspective. Who or which group perpetuate this, per this practice? Who or which group actually suffering? Especially unjustifiable suffering to an individual or a selected group of individuals. Here are some more questions. What is my role? What is my voice? Should I condemn this practice? Should I go along or should I withdraw from the scene? Remember South Africa? A lot of corporations withdraw actually. Can I visualize alternative or creative solution? At the same time, honoring this cultural tradition, uh, but at the same time, not inflicting uh, intolerable suffering on other young girls or boys, etc. At le what level can I act as a, a uh, advocate? All right, who are my allies? Who are my opponents? If you're dealing with a global organization, are you ethically confident to defend your decision? Can you face your spouse, children, and parents to know about this choice? Would the resulting porn system be beneficial to the larger community? In the end, like I say, many problematic cultural practices perpetuate themselves because of ignorance. And to me, it's fear. Fear of getting rid of something you hold on for so long. And I think I would like to bring in Malala, hope. Hope is a shining light to creative illumination. And I think that's the human spirit to have hope. And I think also the study of intercultural communication ethics or competency ethics, you do need to bring in the strong ethical dimension and the spiritual dimension of hope. It's not just spiritual, religious-wise, but the human spirit of hope, all right? So education, in the end, is how we change some of the intolerable cultural practices and meta-ethics sometimes is really combining um, maybe different cultural ideas to create a third cultural outlook. This is by Fred Casimir and also uh, yeah, his, his team, third culture perspective. And finally, I do believe that in order to move towards universal humanism, universal ethics, we do really need strong collaboration, such as this symposium, in terms of creating the cross-cultural education center, dialoguing and some very deep mindfulness, deep mind, mindful listening, so that really we can talk about universal human respect issue above and beyond just face work of other faith, self-faith, mutual faith, and communal faith. Thank you. Questions, anyone? Q&A, I think we have a few minutes. I know I've been going very fast, but yeah. 
I think when the conflict is so entrenched, it is very difficult. But if I have my pick, still education, grown up education. But yeah, right now it's so polarized. Uh, it's very difficult to even have any dialogue. But I will go to the point of some human dialogue of we all have families. We all don't want to see our mother, our father, our son, our daughter, our brother, sister die meaninglessly like this way. So I'll go with the family level to have some discussion, but I think it'll be very tough to even the first step, right? Because we have very entrenched conflict, intractable conflict. Um, but I hope there comes a day that the grassroots movement or the ground up level. <coughs> Getting to know your enemy's face, I think is very important, but right now we see each other as the enemy. So it's very impersonal. We could bomb them or they could bomb us, we could kill. They do not see that human deep face. They see the enemy face. But if there's some point of how to even create some human interaction activities, such as I know Israel and Palestinian, uh, on the ground up level, they really sponsor now a lot of the children coming together uh, to play music together, to play soccer together from the younger generation to let them to know each other on that human level, as versus catching them too late, that is tougher. So I think we more intergroup activity, intergroup dialogue, and the commonality of what is our hope and dream. They do need team of skillful negotiator from different sides. Yeah, it will be tough, but like I say, we will have hope. <laughs> If we have no hope, it will be a very pessimistic global society. So we need to retain the spirit, uh, the spirit of resiliency and hope that we do have dreams and hope that we could get into the peaceful world one day. I think surface level similarities are increasing, but the deep level of the iceberg slower to change. So on the surface level, you know, the pop culture and all that we could pop and hit that look like that we are similar. But when you dig deeper, I think some of those traditional custom and values still prevail, but change a little bit faster now because we get to interact. Um, so rather than either or, I'll say both simultaneously that at the same time, maybe similarity and commonalities are increasing, but the fact that with the social media, there are pros and cons, we thought we know, but we might more less, 
Just because frequency of contact does not necessarily mean that you know really a person, his or her complex identity. So I think we need to do multiple layers, sponge cake, multiple layers of analysis. It's just in the quantitative, we talk about the paradigm. In quantitative research, when you don't have significant results, we got so blah, right? But I'm saying that maybe we should be happy when there's no significant result. Maybe just the commonality that's not showing up. Yeah, but that's the paradigm thing, the dominant paradigm, maybe oppressing all those people that didn't find differences will not get published. Thank you. Thank you for being mindful audience. Thank you all. Enjoy the rest of the weekend.